0: Show me the magic. I take
1: you out to the well, I hope you come and see me in the movie.
2: What a scene of Hollywood song. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week that film is 1994's Backbeat, a music biopic co-written and directed by Ian Softley and starring Stephen Dorff as the legendary fifth Beatle Stuart Sutcliffe, Ian Hart as John Lennon and Cheryl Lee as Astrid Kirscher. Set in the early days of the band's career in Hamburg, Germany, the film tells the age-old story of 2 Beatly best mates whose friendship is tested when one falls in love with a beautiful foreign artist And he starts to spend more time with her and the new art scene she inhabits at the expense of his commitments to the group and his fellow bandmates. It's a tale as old as time. Uh, So first question, obviously, then, is... um, It does seem like there is a parallel between uh, the story of uh, Stuart Sutcliffe and Astrid with uh, what John then later experiences in life with Yoko Ono. But I did find it interesting... um, you know, while we go sort of focus on John straight away, they find it interesting that in this film he's depicted as someone that has no interest in the art world whatsoever, even though he did attend the same art college as Stuart. Um, is that is that fair? Uh, I don't know whether
3: it's completely fair. I mean, so certainly he was uh, doing sketches and uh, writing and illustrating his own comics when he was a kid. I think when he went to art college. It was mainly as a bit of a DOS, oh, so yeah. he could sort of uh, just get away with not doing anything for a while and like maybe give him licence to explore his creative interests and keep Aunt Mimi happy that he was going to college at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what from what I understand, he was not a very good art student. Not, not that he had no artistic talent, but he just wasn't... Uh, a, he didn't want to try all that much. Mm. He was... Uh, more preoccupied with uh, drinking and girls and music. Um, sure, and, and uh, I mean, who isn't? You know, <laughs> um, and and um, and be that uh, he was sort of outshone by his contemporaries, and so that's that's one of the interesting things about shining
2: a light on Stuart Sutcliffe, who was a brilliant artist by all accounts and an so incredibly promising one. Is it interesting in that uh, because I think of John Lennon as someone who is Invested in the art world, but I think that obviously be- is because of that's informed by um, us knowing his sort of exploits of Yoko after they meet. Mm-hmm. Um, is it interesting then that in this film he's seen as kind of almost been opposed to uh, Stuart's new friends and the scene that's that's happening in Hamburg at the time? Yeah. Like he doesn't seem to buy into it at all. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. I think he's sort of there's a scene early on. When in Liverpool, when Stuart's just, uh, he's got a, a, a life model around, um, and, he, and he's doing a painting, John shows up and he's not completely dismissive of the whole idea, but he does joke about it. It's one of the best jokes in the thing, where, in the whole film, where Stuart shows him the painting, he says, What do you think? And he says, Hanging's too good for I him. I love that joke. It's, I thought that was brilliant. It's a really yeah. good
2: joke. Um, uh, uh, you know This, this is uh, we've, we've done a few films now for, for this podcast of ours And I feel like I like it when There are moments like that Where a writer Has really nailed Like Lennon's Humour mm, Yeah Like yeah. just being able to Pull off these Like quite good um, uh, Like Bomb mots Bomb yeah. moths And stuff And that works really well That one
3: Yeah it's a, Yeah Just sort of little Witticisms That sound yeah. um, Lenonian If I can use that <laughs> word Like That's a word <laughs> yeah, have I just coined that? You have coined it, yeah, we're going to use that from now on I'm quite pleased with that, okay, but yeah, let's do that um, Yeah, it certainly sounds like they came uh, from from his mouth and his brain because really? um, I think there are there are films or depictions of him where he's just sort of constantly making these witticisms or supposed witticisms which are mm. actually not particularly right. witty Yeah, uh, This, I think really, the film and Ian Hart like, really get his wit, I think.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, and delivery. Yeah. Because so it's so. quite. It can be quite cutting in, in some ways as well. Yeah. Um, so, going back to the art question, um, do we think that uh, the way that the film portrays John's relationship with Stuart as two incredibly close best friends um as Stuart becomes enamoured with Astrid and the, the, the art scene in which she sort of um, enjoys, do we think that that implies that, that John was kind of primed for a similar kind of experience by the time he meets Yoko? Almost like that experience with Yoko is informed by um, his relationship with Stu and then seeing go through that first.
3: Yeah, maybe. I, d- I don't know whether it makes that point In a very sort of forceful way, necessarily, but yeah, I think that is. I think that's a really interesting reading of it because Mm -hmm. that did not occur to me at all. Um, And I think that that the fact you've read it that way is is really interesting. Very insightful, may I say? (laughs) Thank Uh, you (laughs) very much. And um, yeah, I think yeah, it is nice to draw those parallels. I think that there's a bit. One of the things I really like. But one of the things that kind of slightly frustrates me is that near the end of it, it suggests to you that John was always in love with Astrid mm. and jealous of the fact that she was with Stuart. And actually, I think like your reading of it is much more satisfying. The fact that this is the thing, it, it, it sort of awoken something in him of yeah. a, an appreciation of, uh, of the arts beyond rock and roll. Um, and it awoken his sort of soul or spirit in a way. Um, and that just by exposure to the influence that she's had on Stuart and by proxy on John, John has been uh, just sort of woken up to yes. that artistic spirit. And uh, yeah, the idea that he kind of takes that on and sort of seven or eight years later or whatever it is, he's able to fully express that through his relationship
2: with I, ben, And I think it? that's it as well. I know we, we you know, it's not necessarily. When he meets Yoko, he goes through the same story, but just the idea of him having this artistic side of him awoken. I, I certainly didn't get, by the way, from watching this film, that John had any feelings from Astrid at all in the movie. I, and I didn't, I didn't feel like the film was trying to say that he did. I feel like it was almost doing that exact thing, that it was uh, sort of an open artistic expression, and that, that created it, almost a bit of confusion with how the characters were with each other on an emotional level. Mm. So even when they kissed at the end, I don't—I never felt like the film was trying to tell me that that was because John had feelings for her. I felt that that was just a way for them to express feelings um, around how close they were and uh, at a time when they were being exposed to lots of, sort of creative endeavours.
3: Yeah, I, I, so I think, that I mean, I agree that uh, through what it does throughout the film is doesn't seem to be making that point. But then there's the scene in the lighthouse at the end mm. where she says, "When you're rich and famous, how will you remember me?" And he says, "You know, I'll remember you as." The, I think he puts it in like the second person yes. sort of lessen the impact of what he says. But um, you know, I'll remember you as you know the one that got away. The girl who I, I was in love with, uh, but who she loved my best friend. Um, because that I just found quite jarring.
2: Because... Yeah, and I see what you mean about that. that's a really good point. Because I, I, I guess even then I'm still I'm I'm not taking what John is saying in that scene at face value. Okay, I think what he's saying there, I don't. I guess I haven't really got an interpretation for it other than face value. But yeah. I guess I never really took it to mean that he was he was literally you know laying his. Um, his feelings out on the line and, and saying this is how I've always felt about you or mm. or anything like that. I think it was just a. I, I saw it more as a closeness between the three of them. Yeah, and it was more, I guess, more of a friendly love than a than, um, you know, him having romantic feelings for her and and Stu stole her away from him or something hmm. um, because the film certainly doesn't set it up that way at all there was no depiction of, of anything like that at all I tried that scene
3: no 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 not at all and uh, and it actually I mean so that scene where the four of them are on the beach Cynthia yes. as well and they're spending the night there you, you can kind of see uh, Cynthia feels a bit intimidated by the sort of artiness of these new friends. Yeah. When she's talking to Astrid, you know, what, what do you want out of life? And Cynthia's saying, you know, not much really. I'd like a house. I'd like it, you know, I'd like children. You know? yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, that's not Astrid's path at all. So it's sort of making that distinction between them. And it, and it also kind of, mm. uh, it, 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 it kind of throws into sharp focus. It, it's, it, it's a little unfair on Cynthia really, but it's sort of using her as a character to demonstrate that John is on this path Yes. Um, it says you know he's going to. There's a line in it. It's like, you know he's going to.
2: He wants the world. He wants the so world. What, exactly so what so. do you want, Cynthia? And Cynthia yeah. says, uh, "I want you know like big house. I want kids. But really, all I want is John." Yeah. And Astrid says, "John wants the world." Yes. Yeah, and yeah. That that bugs me a little bit because yeah. I have a real problem with this kind of biopic. Yeah. Um, where they do this kind of clumsy. Um, foreshadowing, yes. So when they and, it, and it's really like this lighthouse scene and the beach scene and stuff, where a lot of that occurs, where Ashridge asks John, "What will you do when you're rich and famous?" Yeah, and this idea of John wants in the world and stuff, and th- those are lines that are written with hindsight, obviously in hindsight, yeah, yeah, and they're a way to get the the character now to uh to so the John character now to comment on what we know he'll later become. Yeah. But it doesn't feel natural to me. It feels like you wouldn't say that in real life. Because I, you know, I, I don't go around telling my friends um, that this guy that I know is destined for greatness. That might just be down to who I hang out with. Maybe I need to choose better friends. But yeah. in general, you don't really know that those things are, are, are happening.
3: Yeah. You don't you don't say that to people about me?
2: Um <laughs> I mean to be fair enough I'm in my early 40s If it was going to happen It would happen already. <laughs> I told many people You're destined for greatness In your 60s uh, As what I think the word I used Was notoriety <laughs> <laughs> Yes I think that's fair. <laughs> Yeah
3: I'll, uh, I'll say something Horribly controversial On this podcast And get cancelled for it was 100% was going to happen That's yes. my
2: path to glory <laughs> Um but do you know, what I mean, I, I feel like those are those are, there, there are scenes. Any kind of film like this has a responsibility to tell um, broadly what's what was accurate at the time, mm-hmm. but without the ex- not at the expense of telling a good story, obviously. Yeah. And then there are these moments where it feels a little bit self-indulgent because it's the director or the writer saying, "We can just have a moment here where we get to comment on the facts about how brilliant, or, like, how famous, and how." What a genius this this person going to become? We're going to yeah. talk about that bit now, yeah. And it doesn't really survive with those two previous points, yeah. Pe- people, um, I forget who it was, but I th-
3: there was an interview of someone who'd seen them at the cabin. It was maybe maybe Jerry Marsden or someone like that, but someone who you know who was sort of part of that scene and had seen them at the cabin, and they were doing the interview, the, you know, the contemporary interview, and they said, you know, so. Did you think they'd be the biggest thing in the world? And most people say, "Yeah, I could. Yeah, I could tell they were just going to be the best thing in the world." It's the stock answer. And this actually, maybe it wasn't Jerry Marsden, but whoever it was said, "No, I, I thought they were really good bands, but no, like you can't. Yeah. There's, there's no way you can <clears throat> imagine that sort of thing." Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it, which is a, a good and honest answer. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. in terms of the, the the sort of foreshadowing thing, I mean, the, there are uh, there are lines in it that are dropped in. Someone mentioned, John says, Oh, it's been a hard day's night. And uh, Stuart says, I've been working eight days a week. Mm -hmm. And George says his line from Hard Day's Night. uh, Oh, by all means, i will be quite prepared for that eventuality. Oh, yes, it (laughs) is. Which is like, and obviously, no no one is saying, Oh, yeah, this is a thing that they said back then and then was written into Hard Day's Night. It's just a nice little Easter egg. Yeah. It's fan service, really. It's a nice little flourish. Yes. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, I, but no, I do agree with. I always get the same feeling about biopics as well. It's like, in order to sat- satisfy the audience, they have to do this sort of foreshadowing thing of how great this person's going to be, where actually nobody at the time can really tell.
2: Yeah. 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 And also, there was no,
3: it's especially weird that people are saying that because there was no precedent whatsoever, other than maybe Elvis. But Elvis was just a one-off as far as everyone was concerned. Nobody was thinking, like, who's going to be the next Elvis? You know, this is now a thing. There are going to be rock and roll artists who get mega big because it was just seen as a fad at the time. There was no... Nobody... If this was kind of set in the... 70s, anytime from the 70s on, at least there was a precedent for oh, this band is really talented, they're going to be massive.
2: Yeah, it's really the point. Yeah, the yeah, idea of anyone that saying that about,
3: about the Beatles when they were in Hamburg is just like, oh, these guys are really good and I like watching them play in clubs. Yeah, there was no, there was no, I mean, nobody even had heard any of the songs they'd written the, themselves. Yeah, know. there's no way to
2: predict that. Buddy Holly and the Crickets, is that about as close as in the Cause obviously, they're called the Beatles at this point, aren't they? Like yeah, they've got, they've got that name by riffing on. The Crickets, yeah, yeah, maybe, but it's still Buddy Holly, right? I guess you know, it's still, uh-huh. yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's a really interesting point. I thought, I, I think that, um, I think on the whole, the the film does a really, really brilliant job at presenting, uh, the band at that time in their career, but as a band, so the actual The band dynamic, what they have to go through in that stage of career where they are playing, um, you know. Uh, sweaty, sleazy clubs mm. um nonstop having to take drugs in order to keep up. Yeah. I actually think from what I've heard or what I've read about what what the Beatles actually had to do in real life is is far worse in terms of how long they had to stay on stage than than the film really makes clear. Yeah. yeah. Make the yeah. film makes it clear as in like they've had to play a few times, but like in, in what I read, it's like you know 50 odd times within the space of a couple of weeks or something. It's an insane amount of yeah, times. eight yeah. or six or eight hours sets at a time, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think they do, I think the film does a really good job of, um, of depicting that part of their sort of group dynamic. But I think, um, only when they're on stage actually playing the songs, yeah. they there's a great sound. We'll talk about the actual music, I guess, in, a little bit later, but there's a great sound. Um, when they're actually playing live and the music they're playing, really raucous, raw rock music, which yeah. is rock and roll music, which is which is brilliant to hear. Yeah. But all of that kind of uh, becomes the focus, and what you don't actually have is individual character into play all that much outside of John Stewart. Yeah. So, whilst as a group dynamic, as a band's dynamic on stage, I think um, that that works really well. Mm. You don't have um, you don't have an awful lot of John and Paul time. No, which is um, which is interesting, I guess, because yeah. of you know the idea is that John and Sutcliffe, uh, uh, John and uh, Stuart were best mates, and then when Stuart left, Paul became his best mate. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's.
2: I mean, you're right. The other
3: Beatles are kind of side characters in this because mm-hmm. it is about uh, John and Stuart's relationship, and certainly, like, I think. It, I mean, it does a really, really good job of demonstrating. Their closeness, their bond, John and Stuart. So there's, I mean, there's a scene near the start where they're in Liverpool, uh, standing on a roof, kind of looking out over the city. And so, you know, they've got this private joke of, you know what I like best about Liverpool? What I was hoping you'd tell me.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then they have, yeah. they have this little, they have this little rift between them where uh, John said, I think, um, Stuart mentions Van Gogh and John says, Oh, I bumped into Van Gogh the other night in the grapes. And Stuart immediately just goes, Oh, oh yeah. Like, you know, it's, like, it's that improvisation kind of thing. It's the thing that they'd say to each other. Yeah. 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 But it's, it, it's, it, he's, he's like, he's doing like yes and. Yes. Like the improvisation him to, thing. Yeah. You know, it's because it's that, it's that thing, it's like when you're friends, you're close friends, and you have a shared sense of humor and you say something very silly. And rather than just laughing or going, What are you on about? Your friend knows you're doing a bit and he just goes along with it mm-hmm. and you kind of play it out between you. And that's a really nice thing that only close friends have. It's a really good shorthand for demonstrating that. And then by the end of it, um, when Stuart has decided to uh, leave the band, Beatles have gone back to Liverpool. They come back to Hamburg. They find out Astrid meets them at the airport and they find out that Stuart has died, which is how it happened in real life, as I understand it. Mm. Um, when they're walking through the airport, John and Paul are now... Talking to each other, doing that joke about you know what I like best about Hamburg. Yes. You yeah, of course. So, it, so it's it, it's showing you that Paul, who, who was apparently in that first trip to Hamburg in real life, was quite sidelined.
0: Was, in general, okay. I think John was sharing
3: busy. a room with Stuart. Paul was sharing with Pete, who you know wasn't saying very much and didn't really hang out and drink with them all that much. Right, said, okay. I think he'd sort of found a girlfriend in Hamburg, and he was when he wasn't on stage, he was kind of spending all his time yeah. with her. So I think Paul kind of felt like he'd been, uh, you know, the odd one out. Yeah, Um, yeah. That's interesting. There's bits in um, Tune In, Mark Lewis's first book, where I think it's Stuart is writing a letter home to someone or other and says that, you know, Paul's really out of it. Like the rest of us don't like him very much. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, it it may be that Paul remembers that differently and fair enough, but, you know, that's... um, I'm, I'm going by that. And actually, uh it kind of makes sense that he is a side character in this story. Oh, certainly,
2: yeah. yeah. And also, like, you know, the film makes no bones about that being the case. I mean, God, the yeah. the, the, the front cover is, is a riff on the... Um, uh, with the Beatles. With the Beatles album cover. Yeah. um And it's only Stuart and Astrid that is, are in colour, right? And the yeah. others are, are... Right. Deliberately sidelined on the, on the front page of the thing. But yeah. I do think that the film doesn't really have any dialogue that shows uh, the other band members being friends right yeah um, is that right I think there's there's a nice bit just before they get deported where um uh, Stuart um, comes in and finds them and Paul and George are playing cards yeah um, and, and there's, there's, a, there's sort of a little bit of a fun interplay there but um but on the whole like you don't really get the sense that they are. Uh, they've got They've left Liverpool. They've gone to Hamburg together. Yeah, they're, they're, they're in for months playing day in, day out together. You yeah. don't really get the sense necessarily of um, how deep the friendship goes with any of the rest of the band, other than John Stewart. No, that's true. And you, you're, you're probably right in saying it's fair that it's sidelined because that's not what the film is focusing on. But I, I don't know. I, I just I feel like there's there's a little bit of a lost missed opportunity to. I feel like they they could have been tightened up in some easy ways to just show a little bit more camaraderie with the rest of the the band to show that they're quite a tight-knit group.
3: Yeah, that's true. Because actually one of the things is that uh, certainly at the start, George, through being the youngest, is shown to be the the butt of jokes. Mm, His his, his mum turns up at
2: the docks. His mum played by, do you know? Played by, no, played by who? Uh, Frieda Kelly, who was the secretary of the Beatles fan. Oh, okay, right. I had no idea. Uh, very, very clever. Um, <laughs> nice. No, just nice. I, I that's a that, nice touch. There yeah, were a couple a of good. things like that in the film. I think that they they sort of brought um, out uh, you yeah. know some sort of like new, little Easter eggs or marches or something yeah. film, which okay. is quite cool. Yeah. It's but anyway, true. yeah. So he's he's the part of the joke. Yeah. He's the one that's left standing outside as well when they actually first start um, getting new girls and stuff. Or that's right. America. That's right. Yeah, because
3: George actually in real life lost his virginity in Hamburg. Oh, did he? And uh, in the same room as the others, I right? Think. Cool. Like on the on the top bunk or whatever it is, while someone right. the, while the rest of them were in the room or something like that. Um, but but yeah, so he's, he's shown like that
2: bit. would be like a Bonding experience that <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> You'd think, yeah. you think would, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there is no sense in any of that in the
3: film. No, but but what I do mean is that um, because he's shown to be a bit, you know, the, the young one, he's a bit unsure of himself to start off with, and by the end of it. He is more part of that group, um, but they don't quite stress that as much as they Mm. could, I suppose. But then again, does it need, I mean, you know, it's not the focus of the film. Does it particularly need stressing? I don't know.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: It was interesting is what you said about Pete Best because I, I felt like throughout the film he got uh, short shrift mm. um, because uh, he isn't, you know, he, he gets banned in any line. Which is interesting that you say that he had a girlfriend and actually he's been a lot of time with her and that would make sense. yeah. But without that being made clear in the film, I am left um, thinking, he's like one of five people in your band and no one talks to him.
3: Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe that was you know fairly close to the truth but i mean Maybe. but i mean they even make i mean that one of the few lines he has is when they're in the sort of arty uh, bar and they're drinking the blue drinks the henry's yes um yeah. and john says to pete you don't say much do you and pete says no you know why you know drummers never talk you know why because nobody ever listens
2: yeah and he's really angry
3: about it and you think oh well um where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. What like, is, what is the story there? Yeah, cause what, cause either you flesh that story out a little bit and demonstrate why he's angry, you know, why he feels sidelined mm. or, or you just don't. Yeah. yeah. It's just a bit distracting, really. You just get, you've got this little thread of a story that you think, Oh, that's interesting. Why aren't they picking at that?
2: You know, yeah, play. yeah. There is, I did quite like it though, when, um, he, when he actually has an outburst. Um, uh, and he said "I'll oh, just put it together." On and storms off. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, which to me is like—is that supposed to be a bit of a, like a, a silent Bob moment? You know, like he doesn't talk about the rest <laughs> of the film, and then like when he does, it's because it's important and he right. has to say it. Right. 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 Um, right. But what I liked about that scene was that um, uh, he leaves, and then it's George who then says to the others he spoke. Which I yeah. like because George is the quiet one in the Beatles. That's right. he's known as that. Right. right. So yeah, it's yeah, nice yeah. that he's the one commenting on on the um, yeah 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 on Pete doing that.
3: Yeah yeah yeah. So I mean, it sort of gets into the band dynamics. I sort of think it gets into the band dynamics as much as it needs to, considering what the story is focusing
2: is. Yeah yeah yeah. Fair enough. I think that's probably fair enough. I think I think as a Beatles fan, you kind of want to try to draw as much out of it as you can about the group and stuff. But yeah. really, it's not it's not about the group at all it is, it's very much about Stuart Sutcliffe and um, and I think that, um, I, I mean, everything I know about Stuart Sutcliffe probably, probably comes from watching this film when it first came out. Yeah. You know, I have very fond memories and vivid, vivid memories of watching it for the first time and feeling really enlightened yeah. by it. Yeah. Um, yeah. More so than I did when I when I watched sort of similar stories in the anthology series. Yeah, I felt like this brought to life a whole part of their career in a way that I just hadn't been privy to and and now when I think about the Beatles in Hamburg I think about this film. Yeah. absolutely. Um, more, more so than the other. Yeah. Um but it is very much Stuart's story and it's it's probably taken me a few you know, from from when I first watched it when it first came out in ninety four, um, I've I've seen it a handful of times now. Um but uh, it probably took me a few viewings to understand that Stuart Sutcliffe was worthy of his own story. Yeah. Like in terms of what he did for the band, or his his part of the story in the band, and and actually the the whole sort of uh, storyline of of two best friends and a girl coming between them, and mm. you know one being on the brink of greatness, and the um, yeah, other having to choose between. I think they, I think even the tagline, in the film is basically that having to choose between uh, the girl he loves and the you know best band in the world or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the fact that there is actually a, a, a a worthy story for for Stuart in the film. And, and I, I do think it's taken me a couple of years, but I feel like I, I sort of really appreciate that about the film now.
3: Yeah, I think I think like you, in i I'm not sure if I saw it in nineteen ninety-four, but I would have seen it um in the nineties for the first time. Uh when I would have been a fan who had maybe read a bit and I would have I guess known who Stuart Sutcliffe was, but not really had any background info. And Yeah, like you, I think my uh, view of him has been informed very heavily by this film. I think, um, like one of the one of the decisions they make is—I mean, you think about—I mean, all of these all of these actors are British or Irish. I think, with the exception Mm -hmm. of Stephen Dorff, who plays Stuart Sutcliffe, Stephen Dorff. Was then and still is now just an exceptionally handsome guy in a very, in a very Hollywood way. Yeah. 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 Well,
2: he, as in he is from LA, right? So he's right. yeah very much the American movie star. Yeah, exactly. And, and that
3: is such a good casting choice because it, it really uh, illuminates the idea of Stuart being slightly special and slightly set apart from the rest of them. You know, I sort of had this, uh, I sort of have this mental image of Stuart Sutcliffe as a sort of, alien or, yeah. or, or, or an angel in a way you know what i mean like he had this it, it, it he plays it's one of the amazing things about the Beatles story in general is it just has this cast of characters in it that have such uh vivid roles in them mm. in a what you know it's what it's it's so it's just set up to make movies out of this kind yeah. of thing it's such a it's such a Perfect. I mean, it's a tragic story, Stuart's story, but I mean, just in terms of a narrative arc, yeah. what happened in real life is so sort of perfectly suited to a story, you know. And that's one of the things. You know, these- we
2: talked about this a bit with, um, when we first um, talked about two of us as well. Like, mm-hmm. there's actually there's a little bit of timeline manipulation here yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in order to tell a story. But on the whole, it's it's um, it, it's, a, it's it, the story is there to be told. Yeah. There's this idea of him finding something else in his life and being at a, um, uh, a sort of a crucial point where he has to choose between the the, the actual things that he wants in life, um, you know, passion for his own art mm. and being bastard and being with, um, you know, a band that in the film depicts as being on the brink of signing record contracts and success. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, you're right. This is, you know, it's those, those so sort of like... Um, uh, the, the kinds of dilemmas that make for good stories and stuff are just there to be told.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it, you know it makes it makes really good hay out of what is already there. You know, and it, yeah. I mean, the, it, there is the odd bit. We may as well throw in a bit a bit of nitpicking. Okay, um, right. <laughs> you know, there, there is there, there are a few things that are sort of thrown together for convenience. So it uh, for a start, it strongly hints that. Stuart, having got beaten up and hit in the head is the thing that eventually caused his brain hemorrhage. Yes. Um, that, as I understand it, is, um, it seems to have, I think Mark Lewison says this, this has more or less become accepted wisdom, but it's, it, it can't really be any more than speculation. Mm. Um, that, uh, that beating, which he did take in real life, happened between the first two Hamburg trips. When they come back, January nineteen sixty one, I think, and um, it, it and it's sort of one of the first scenes in the film is him getting beaten up by before they've been to Hamburg. Um, now, I mean, you know, yeah. they, like I say, it's I mean the the actual timeline of that doesn't really matter that much. It's for narrative convenience. That's fine. The the the, the it, it more or less states that that blow to the head is what eventually killed him. You know. And that uh I'm not that can't certainly can't be conclusively proven.
2: One of the things about that is that what the film does by by suggesting that's what caused the very damage. First of all, it, first of all the film creates a through line um from the start of the accident to the end of the film. um so that what it does frequently is so when he first has that accident and, and, and bans his head. Um, so I it was quite more significant yeah. than that <laughs> when he has a bit of a knock on the head because um, when he, when, actually what he does is um, I don't know if you remember when, when the, those guys beat him up and throw him against that wall and he, he crashes his head against that um, and hurts himself the first thing John Lennon says is you killed him because he thinks he's dead but actually that ends up being foreshadowing because the idea is that actually that is what killed him Right. Yeah. Um, but then he has this almost comically red blood up his nose, which I, I sort of first took to be bad makeup, but actually it's deliberate because the idea of red being like a color color motif throughout the film. Every time he has some sort of um, implied uh, hemorrhage um, informed outburst. Yeah, um, there's a there's a strong sense of color uh, red right up through to when he actually dies. Um, Astrid is getting dressed in a bright red dress. Yeah. Um, and she comes through dressed in his bright red dress and, and finds him, yeah. you know, suffering from that. So it creates that through line, um, first of all, which the, I think the film is in, 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 implying and, and hangs a bit of some of its scenes on. Um, but what it also does, quite crucially, is imply that his death wasn't his own fault. Mm-hmm. It was these other characters that beat him up when, um, you know, and that, that wasn't yeah. um, his doing Whereas a lot of, the, well, you know, the practitioner at the time at least, and there's a lot of thinking around the fact that actually it was down to alcohol or drug use, as a, which kind of makes for a sort of less sweet story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that thing it
3: does with Red is, um, yeah, it's kind of quite striking. It does sort of, uh, it's sort of almost not quite its culmination, but the sort of penultimate scene where you see it is where, he he beats up Klaus Foreman, mm. which I think didn't even come close to happening in real life. It's <laughs> yeah. it, it's a, and actually the narrative it takes that Klaus and Astrid were a couple, and then Stu kind of stole her away from him. As I understand it, they were very close friends, Klaus and Astrid, and I think had been romantically involved in a sort of casual mm. way, um, but. It, 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 Klaus tells it as, you know, it, I, I, I was happy she would found Stuart. They were in love, and that was fine. You know, I yeah, don't yeah. get the impression it was a big jealous thing. And then, yeah, so he, uh, Stu beats him up in the film, which you know is that's a big old scoop of artistic license. Yeah, um, quite
2: brutal that scene as well. It's, it's, very, it's very like it gets very quite visceral when um, when he starts doing that. Yeah, and, and it's a real that's the first uh, even though he's had a couple of attacks um before that scene in terms of like you know him, him suddenly being of immense pain yep um that's the first time mm. where the the camera takes a sort of slightly different tack in how it portrays Stephen, and you and you know Stephen, steven sorry steven mm. and you know that it's he's under the influence of of, of what's happening is in his brain mm. at that point you know that it is this isn't him doing this, he is, you know, it, it sort of takes this really sort of like obscene close up, and there's a bit of sweat on his brow, and so like you know, yeah, it's, yeah. um, it's, he's under the influence of, of saying that's not quite him. Yeah, and, and, um, and
3: that's, you know, that's a very
2: sort of cinematic
3: shorthand way of saying this guy is getting worse and worse, you know, and he, yes. he, he, yeah, he, look, yeah. he looks much more ill and pale as it goes on, you know, and who knows what it was. You, you do have to have shorthand for these things, mm. you know, you can't, it, it it's, it's what films do. There's no point in complaining that it's not completely real. No,
2: no, of course not. No, Of course, yeah, that's exactly that. I, but you, you said before, so um, Klaus and Astrid weren't necessarily together and there was no sort of jealous streak there between the three of them. I think I think that's sort of suggested because the incident that's happening that makes um, Stuart sort of react in that way as a result of, of the injury in his head. Um, but also... The bit that I didn't really get about that scene was that he gets jealous because he sees them holding hands. Right. But actually, it seemed kind of implied earlier on that there's a little bit of a free love spirit in that whole art scene anyway. And mm. even though Stuart and Ashley are devoted to each other, uh, clearly, mm. um, everyone seems a little bit sort of with each other, and you know, do you know what I mean? like, yeah, like yeah. The, 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 the thought that he would file the handle at seeing them just hold hands and stuff doesn't seem real because they're quite comfortable with each other in this sort of club scene environment where everyone's a bit, um, yeah, just sort of free and, and easy, yeah,
3: yeah. But I, I think maybe, uh, I mean, you know, that, that scene in general didn't make a lot of sense, yeah, to me. I didn't. I initially thought, why is this in here? What, what's it trying to say? Yeah. Uh, and, it was, I mean, and then you pointed out to me before we started recording um, what is quite obvious, you know, that it, it's trying to say that this, his brain hemorrhage is causing him to act this way. Um, but I think also the idea of him being jealous of them holding hands is... Uh, the, the whole thing of him... He, like, he has embraced this art scene... But also, you know, he's from a fairly tough part of Liverpool. Um, but but actually it would make more sense for John's character to have done that because he does resent this whole art scene or thinks he does, or, you know, that's his reaction to it. And he does, it does make him feel uh, like he's um, a bit ordinary and not, uh, you know, and they're all, they're all special or think they're special. And and he's, you know, it brings out his sort of supposed working class hero streak. Um, it, yeah, it would make more sense. And Stuart, I mean, the point of it is that Stuart has sort of embraced this scene, you know, and then he's, he's quite happy, you know, he's sort of going around wearing eyeliner and things like that. Yeah, yeah. and
2: having his shirt, like, tied up, you yeah. know, in a boat when many um, comes to the scene, which yeah. actually, I saw the film and then saw a picture um, of uh, Astrid and Stuart in, yeah. and collapse in real life, and that's uh, clearly it's where the inspiration from because he's got his yeah. shirt. I don't know, yeah yeah, 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 Wearing matching leather trousers in that picture, uh, and there's that scene where they try on each other's clothes, which apparently um, they used to. <laughs> apparently, they did often.
3: Yeah, it's a very brave thing to do in Hamburg in nineteen sixty sixty one. You know, it, it, yeah. It's, I mean, you were really, especially if you're hanging around the Roper Barn area. I mean, you're yeah, which is all like sort of like tough sailors and stuff like that hanging out.
2: You're um, you're probably taking your life in your hands doing that. It's too. interesting as it, you say that because there is a couple of bits in the film that suggest that. There's there's a bit where you have Klaus and Ashton and their friends watch the band on stage, yeah. which is when Stuart decides that he's not playing, doesn't really care about the band, and, yeah. and just walks off mid-song. Yeah, uh, and and they will leave. But just before that happens, like this sort of tough um, big guy in in the club. Um, looks ready to make trouble with one of the you know the, the Astrid's and Cloud's friends, yeah, and then gets stopped by security. Yeah. And I guess the implication is that these are these sort of you know pretentious um, potentially uh, there's a bit potential sort of homophobia um, yeah. uh, element to that whole scene. Yeah, um, but it's not really called out that much in the film, is it? The the, the, the fact that the art scene that Stuart is involved in is actually very, very different <clears throat> to not only the, guy, the, the guy's upbringing, but also the rest of the Hamburg scene that they're currently playing to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things are kind of kept quite separate. Yeah. But I, I guess you know that
3: creates the space for Lennon's. It, 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 it's all Dick scene. <laughs> I mean, he says that a few times, but, but yeah. the main one is when they've gone to this bar where they're all drinking the blue drinks, and they're all you know hanging around with the exes, as they said. Um, and he, and he resents the whole thing. It makes him feel less than, Yeah. that they're, they're all avant-garde and cleverer than him. Um, and, and he disrupts the whole thing and go, you know, and it uh, goes around telling everyone what he thinks of them, you know, and, uh, which leads, by the way, to, um, what, the, the, there are a couple of uh, scenes in it where Paul actually, um, gets lines that do kind of illustrate his character a bit. Mm-hmm. And that sort of classic McCartney diplomacy where he sort of scoops up Lennon and, and, and sings the little song of like oh, yeah. know, now it's time to, now it's time to say goodnight, Andy and Teddy are waving goodbye. Yes, that's right from yeah. that's from Andy Pandy, I think is it? Oh is it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I know what you mean, yeah. And um and, and that's very very McCartney, just diffusing the whole yeah, thing and being yeah. a diplomat and uh, and uh, taking. There's on. a couple of bits like that as well, isn't it? There? There's
2: a bit where um, they um actually meet with the uh, Polydor um, studio guy mm. again. That the actual the second time around when they actually sit down and she uh, agrees to sign the record. Yeah. And um, John's basically been very aggressive. Mm. He's you know he's saying like you yeah, whatever you want, yeah you know, we can do it. We can, you know, it doesn't matter what we play, like you know that's just us. Yeah. And Paul's just like what he means is we'll be there. <laughs> yes. like, yeah, like, yeah, let's yeah. actually be, you know, put on our yeah. best, best foot forward kind of thing. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you actually think of Stephen Dorff as, as an actor in the film? Like, actually having to play uh 60s working-class Liverpoolian? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think he's great in general. I mean, his, yeah. ac-
3: his accent's very good. He is. Isn't there, right? it's not. There, there's no bit in it where you cringe at the accent. No, yeah. You know? you're not. And, uh, I mean, Stephen Dorff is one of those actors who like, I'm not sure I could tell you what his natural speaking voice is. Mm-hmm. The last thing I saw him in was true detective where he's playing oh, a sort no. of su- Southern guy and doing it very well. But, um, uh, yeah, he tends, he just tends to sort of melt into things very yeah. effectively. Um, and yeah, like I say, I, I, and I think he does, he does get across that sense that, that Stuart was sort of special in some way. Um, I mean, you you know, the the film is helping him out. The film is doing, the the script, the direction is doing a lot of the legwork there. But his performance as well, he is, um, uh, he is kind of like uh, making a good effort at uh, holding Stuart out to be slightly otherworldly in a way. Yes. You know, that whole thing of kind of standing on stage, uh, wearing sunglasses and uh, playing the bass with a, with a cigarette between his fingers, so and his, cool, with his yeah. fretting hand, yeah, and and there's a bit as well where it, it shows you just their feet on the stage, and the other, men, you know, uh, John Paul and George are all kind of jumping about and stuff, and Stu is just standing there with his feet crossed, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. he is slightly apart from the whole thing, and all that. Stephen Dorff Dorf does all that
2: stuff really, really well, I think. Yeah, I, I do think, by the way, that yeah, he does that really well. Um, there's also a great moment when he first meets Astrid. Um, but he first sees her in the crowd and there's a clear, like, you know, an initial immediate spark. You know, yeah. I don't know, just like two people have seen each other for the first time and they're calling up essentially. Yeah. But there's a great moment where he's basically just locking eyes with her. wearing his like Ray Bans and he's just locking eyes on her but his fret hand is still like frantically moving up and down the board. He's not looking at what he's playing at all, but it's just yeah. a really cool moment. He's just, <laughs> it's almost like the rest of him is in slow motion, but his hand is just really like, um, mm. uh, moving to news. And so it just looks it's, really, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think as well, oh, by the way, that the director, Ian Softley has, um, uh, a huge amount of credit to take for moments like that. So, um, from what I understand from a little bit of research in the film, um, Ian Sopley had been. He first had the idea for the movie about ten years before the film came out. Right. He was working solidly on it for about three or four years before the film came out. Um. And uh, and he had he had Ian Hart. I think was locked in about a year before they started shooting. Um, right. But uh, you, you have to imagine that a guy that's had this project rattling around his brain for that long, that results in those nice neat touches because he has thought about. Is here is where I can just add this little bit here, and here's at, add this little bit here, and like focusing on the feet is a great example of you know of, of exactly that. But yeah. like, that is a, a scene that he's you know all the way through the film there were there are moments like that where where there's been very clearly thought out about how I can make a bit of a statement here. Yeah, um, and it's just yeah, it's just, it works out really, all really well.
3: Yeah, and I, I think there are a bit. I think also the scene where they first take Prelude in um and yes. you know so uh the, the waitress sort of gives them the pills they take them and, and then it cuts straight to them the, close up on their faces really really distorted as they the, as they're singing and i think also like that it, it it that also kind of bleeds into the actual music that is being used because mm-hmm. it's being played by uh american rock stars from the sort of 90s grunge See it, mainly grunge scene, but sort of yes, American rather alternative Supergroup, I think you'd call it. Yeah. Right, yeah, from that American alternative rock scene. And actually, uh I would imagine that when that was I don't know, but I would imagine when that was announced, that probably caused a bit of a
2: stir. So when you said earlier that um that you don't know if you saw this film when it came out. Right. I did. Right. And the reason I know that is because at the time when it came out I was a gigantic Nirvana fan. Right. And Dave Grohl is, is playing drums in the in the Grunge Supergroup. Yeah. I was also, and I say this now, unashamedly, a gigantic Soul Asylum fan. Really? <laughs> <laughs> a huge, huge Soul Asylum fan. Okay. You couldn't can, you can stop me from listening to Soul Asylum. Okay. Uh, I would remember when I was listening to Nirvana and other people. Um, and uh, Dave Perna, the, the lead singer of Soul Asylum, um, who aren't a band that I don't think anyone else really remembers about from me now, but um, uh, he provides the vocals for Paul McCartney in particular. right? Um, so they match um, uh, singer to vocalist. Um, he also uh, played Dream and Guitar. You've got Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth. Um, you've got Mike Mills from R.E.M. You've got Henry Rollins. Um, there's someone, I forget his name now, from Afghan Wigs in there as well. Right. Um, but I was massively into All of these bands Almost all of these bands At that time So it was a huge And obviously And my my parents um, Were huge Huge Beatles fans As a a little kid I grew up Listening to the Beatles So this for me Was an announcement That was like A cross section Of my interests And my parents' interests And I was I was sort of Kind of You know Over the moon or A little bit bit Proud of the fact That that the the production Was hiring The artists That I'm into now To reproduce the music That my parents Had played to me When I was a kid because your parents um, were specifically into
3: early Beatles, right? They were, yeah, that's,
2: that's right, would, yeah, because yeah, You, you yeah. heard a lot more early Beatles when you were young. I did, you? that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah probably more, you know, let's let's, you know, it's, it's red album stuff rather than blue album stuff, yeah. basically, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, But yeah, and, and and so that was immediately interesting to me that they did that. Yeah. Um, I've, I've since found out that what what so Don was Don was I think his name is pronounced W A S was. was um, he was in charge of the music for the film he apparently pulled together this super group and rec- deliberately recorded the uh, the soundtrack to the film normal music in a really short space of time so that they didn't have time to re-record or, you know, so the idea was to deliberately have this idea of it being very energetic, yeah. very kind of rough. Right. Um, and then that was the music that they then um, had to mime to uh, during the film of the, of the uh, yeah. uh, shoot and stuff. Right, yeah. But yeah, I found that whole thing fascinating, and I, and I and I remember at the time being really into this idea that that the members of these bands that I love are had formed this supergroup for this specific soundtrack. Yeah. But no one ever really talked about it again. <laughs> like the soundtrack got released. I think they even released a single from it. Yeah. Um, but there was no like big deal made out about the fact that there was a. It was only ever seen as a Beatles thing. Yes. Like the film. Was only ever seen as Beatles thing. The music, the the, the story about the grunt supergroup kind of got lost in the in the story a little bit. Yeah, and I get, and I
3: guess it, I mean it also like it makes total sense if you were doing a film about the Beatles in, I mean even from 1963 onwards when they were releasing actual records to get that band to play the songs for the soundtrack wouldn't make any sense. Mm. But the the sort of energy of those. Uh, Hamburg and Cavern performances, you know, we've got, we've got a bit of audio of that, you know, we've got the Star Club tapes and we've got, you know, that sort of brief bit of footage of some other of guy in the Cavern and maybe a couple of other things. We don't really have a sense of the energy they had and actually getting these musicians in. I mean, pe- people, I have heard early rock and roll compared to punk in the way that it was quite basic. You know, the, sure. th- three or four chords and and just being thrashed out in a very energetic way, and I guess I mean you can draw a line from punk to grunge, yeah, I'm yeah, sure, sure. Um, and those um, so people like Thurston Moore uh, and Dave Grohl, I'm sure, would have grown up listening to punk. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. and it and it does make sense. You know, you, you, it, it does make sense to get them in. It's a, it's a really really ingenious idea
2: actually. Uh, to to get them in to do these songs. It's interesting to me that it's that that it's a supergroup formed of American band members yeah. for what is obviously such a British story. But 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 then I guess They're you know exclusively American songs, pretty
3: much. That's the thing. You know, like it's, oh yeah, that's true. Rock
2: and yeah, album. I guess I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking maybe down More the um the you know the the idea behind the Stephen Dorff casting that that, that he sort of lends this sort of different air to the music when it's being played. Yeah. Yeah, um, it does do that. Yeah. That makes the um that makes it stand out against more. I actually found it really interesting that outside of those songs, the soundtrack seems to be like cheesy saxophone music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and I at first I was, you know, on a rewatch in preparation for, for this, and at first I was a bit like that's it's an odd choice for a film about rock and roll. Yeah. Actually, in hindsight, I kind of feel like what it does is it provides the contrast that I think the film needs because it can't be rock and roll at all times. Yeah, um, and also what it does is there are two elements to the film. the You know, the, you have basically it's romance versus like you know the raw energy of a young band playing. Yeah, and so actually it kind of makes sense that that's, that's uh, you have that contradiction or you know. Um, uh, comparison coming through in the music uh, and I think what it does is it helps bring through that sort of dichotomy of the two different elements of the film uh, through so actually in mm-hmm. hindsight I'm kind of all in favour of the cheesy sax right. e- yeah, yeah, yeah. even if at first it was a little bit sort of jarring uh, when I first
3: heard yeah. it yeah I mean it's really good point uh, it's,
2: it's quite a charitable
0: one <laughs> 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 I, I would say
2: like what would you have instead, though? I think that's where I landed. I landed on what what because there needs to be some. There needs to be some incidental score music. Yeah, and it can't all be rock and roll because otherwise that's just. There needs to be some contrast. No, just like
3: some violins or something. You know, <laughs> so it's like It's like, a, it's a it's like I'm not going to sit here and write you <laughs> a score. You know, but, um, but no, prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, give me ten minutes. <laughs> okay, um, but uh, no, I think it, it. The reason it's sax. Is because it's the nineties and, and they're sort of romantic scenes. So, like, when Stuart mm. and Astrid first have sex, I think, like, she's hanging up, uh, prints in her dark room and there's no score. And then he sort of comes up behind her and kisses her neck. Yeah. And she, you know, and the look on her face is like, huh? And, yeah. um, and, and immediately a saxophone starts. Yes, you're right.
2: Yeah. Because, yeah. You know, Do you remember what she does immediately after that? Uh, walks to the other room and gets a kit off? Well no, 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 no. She gets a kit off then walks to the other room.
0: <laughs> oh it's <right, laughs> in that okay. order, you got it in the wrong I so, and, yeah. and and I, I will we say we haven't, that we haven't
2: talked enough about uh, Cheryl Lee. I think she was fantastic in the film as yeah. Astrid. I think she's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um
2: and actually I, I think in you know, a in a film that's about John and Stuart and Astrid ends up becoming sort of the third wheel in, in the in the triangle there, those characters. Mm. Um it's easy to do her disservice by not talking about her, but she's she's um brilliant in that role. Yeah. Um I will say that what she immediately does in that moment after um Stuart kisses her neck is that she sort of um uh clearly has a bit of a, a inner dilemma to overcome because she's um you know seeing Klaus and then visibly changes her mind like visibly like the expression on her face switches from yeah, yeah. oh I can't to oh yeah actually I want this <laughs> um, to then immediately taking the top off spinning around and seeing right. uh, um, uh, Stuart uh, when they start getting it on and this is probably a good time to talk about the excess of boobs yes in the film there is, there is a lot of nudity in this in this film yeah. um, I would argue unnecessarily so <laughs> yes I would agree um
3: if my fifteen-year-old self could hear me saying this, yeah, um, I'd be very disappointed in you because what you've become. I'd be disgusted in me, but um, but yeah, there is too much nudity. It, yeah, it's just it, it's unnecessary nudity in a way that uh, a lot of '90s films
2: had, and I feel like a lot of cheap. Like, I feel like this kind of film. I feel like, I actually feel like maybe the the unnecessary nudity cheapens the film a little bit because you're yeah. right. A lot of '90s films had this, but actually, yeah. the 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 quality that this film has uh, and the uh, the import of the story, yeah. um, you'd expect it to not go down that route so often as it does, yeah, uh, and it does, it's, and it's a bit like, oh, it makes me remember that this was filmed in the 90s, which it should, it should, yeah. it should be a bit more timeless.
3: Yeah, and, uh, so certainly... The scene where they have sex and they're putting paint all, all, all over each other. I mean, Gosh, that's a mess. That is straight out of a 90s erotic thriller.
0: Oh,
2: God.
3: In its defense, uh, there are scenes that have to be set in strip clubs because the Beatles did play as backing for strippers mm-hmm. and, and, you know, come on after strippers. Um, uh, but I mean, that the, there are, I mean, still to this day, you see lots and lots of films. With scenes that are just unnecessarily set in strip clubs. Where it's, yes. just, it's just two men having a meeting and they could do it in a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, But it's in a strip club and, you know, it, it starts off by there's a woman dancing topless on stage and the camera starts on her and then goes over to the guys having a meeting. It's like, yes. You could have had this meeting anywhere. It could have been a cafe, maybe uh, a
2: glass or something. Right, yeah. exactly.
3: A library, say, <laughs> you know, why not? But it would be allowed to talk. No, it's good
2: point. Um, (laughs) The worst place ever, meeting. (laughs) You're right, Um, but uh, no, you're right. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of unnecessary. There's some there's there's some nudity that is justified, and also I think it's justified because you're showing uh, a group of young lads who do have, for want of a better phrase, some kind of sexual awakening mm -hmm. at that time of their lives. Yeah, and that's an important part of of. of that time period for them that is worth showing. So the fact that um, they're in these clubs um, and uh, as Paul, even now, haven't turned 80, regularly still talks about, um, (laughs) regularly still talks about uh, how, you know, this was their first introduction to sex and in a big way. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to show that. I think where I uh, take slight A slight issue with is that, for example, the very last scene of Stuart, where he um, uh, where he succumbs to the brain hemorrhage and and dies, yeah, Um, just before that happens to him, Astrid says, "I've got a surprise for you," and he's like, "I don't like surprises," and she says, "Um, "Well, you have to see what it is," and she uh, walks into another room to get dressed into a nice dress, which I'm assuming is the surprise, right? Yeah. Um, and then he, um, uh, you know, succumbs to his brain hemorrhage and, and dies and calls out her name. Yeah. Um, just before that happens, because she's getting dressed in a red dress, she strips completely naked. Yeah. yeah. And you see her walking to from room to room completely naked before she gets dressed in yeah. That's unnecessary. It is, yeah. That adds nothing to um, the, that scene um, at, at all. Yeah, that, there's, a le- there's
3: a slightly leering... Tone yeah. to to some of the camera work where it comes to nudity when Stuart is painting the life model at the start in Liverpool. Oh yeah, the, ca- yeah. the camera kind of starts on her breasts and stays there for a bit too long. And you know, I mean, he didn't need to do it. I mean, because there's the 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 nudity with the strippers in the strip clubs is full frontal, and there's no need for that. Yeah, yeah, true. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's just I don't know. It, it's um it. I th- you know, <laughs> I was about to say, it was a different time. Um, <laughs> uh,
2: there's so much more about the film, to, as we have already, to discuss over the nudity, but I do think that the point of the, uh, what I would call excessive and unnecessary nudity, I do think ages the film badly. Yes. Um and, and that's a shame because I think I think on the whole the film does a fantastic job of uh and like I say, like it brings to life a, a period of the Beatles' career that that I hadn't been privy to before this film came out, and is now, as far well as I'm concerned, like the foremost um vision of what that experience was like. Yeah. Um so, yeah, it's a shame that Eleanor kind of means that it's sort of, yeah, a- a aged a little bit poorly um, in, in that respect because it does feel like this kind of film that otherwise would be seen as quite a timeless um, Beatles classic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one more point to say on um, Stuart um, is uh, I really enjoyed... I think my, my favourite thing about his arc is that when he after he's left the band and the Beatles go on to um, become successful, and they, they cut their first record, and um, he sees them in the Cavern club, it's really, really nice to see him so proud of the group. And oh. it's actually, there are some nice scenes where you get to see him experience the band as a fan. Yeah. And I think that's just a really nice way to to end the film, because the whole question is, does he make the right choice? And actually, you can see in that moment, not only can you see in that moment, that he, he feels like he has, he's happy, yeah. but he's, the fact that he's, gets to, in, he still gets to, he's not like he's left the Beatles, he still gets to enjoy them. Yeah. You know, yeah. For, obviously for as long as he actually has, but like, that's, that's kind of the, the feeling I get from those scenes, is that it's not like he, he's missed out, because he gets to enjoy the Beatles like everyone else did, and that's how the film kind of ends. Yeah. yeah. For me, which is just a nice sort of note.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think also there's a nice sense there that if he had lived, he would have continued to be involved with them mm. in the same way that Klaus was. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, Klaus is sort of in the in the Beatles story. So you kind of think about it in a way. Klaus is, is sort of a Stuart Sutcliffe proxy. Yeah, into you know doing the the album cover for Revolver, playing bass with I think John John I think played bass with all four of them. In solo work eventually. Oh, did um, he? I think so. so certainly with John Plastico and a band, uh, with, with Paul much, much later, I think, uh, just because I've seen some footage where Klaus is in Paul's studio in Sussex mm-hmm. and they're, they're doing something rather together.
2: Okay. Um, but no, yes, yeah, so, you know, I hadn't talked about that, but yeah, you're right. He does, doesn't he? Yeah, because like, he plays it, as the, the, the end credits come up. Um, uh it, you know the film does that thing that biopics do that we talked about before where it has the you know here's what they did next kind of thing yeah 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 and he says he you know he played based on the Imagine album yeah yeah um which is uh yeah you're right actually that's a really interesting point that's that's basically him being the, the Stuart the band at that point
3: yeah exactly and and i think um uh yeah and Stuart you know if, the, if this guy sort of stayed lived and stayed friends with them um and it would have been a really important, continued to be a really important artistic influence on them. And so, you know, we sort of talked a bit about how he seems, seems to have been an artistic influence on John Mm. and sort of, and I think maybe he would have continued to be, I mean, certainly when they started to get a bit more avant-garde, you can imagine him just being bang into that,
0: you know, and,
3: and, um, uh, you know, and sort of inspiring them artistically and vice versa and, and things like that. I mean, the Beatles were, in, in, in a sense, the Beatles were an art collective. You know, you can you can kind of think of them that way. because Certainly, um, as they developed, um, you know, there was music and film and, and, and visual arts, you know, sort of a, a, a small, like avant-garde films and whatnot that sort of John and Yoko were making, you know, and you can see Stuart being involved in that scene. This is a guy who had a more obvious artistic talent than any of them at that time. He he was the one who was considered exceptional by, you know, um, at his college and whatnot in a way that none of the rest of them were. And like I say, there was no template for the Beatles to be what they became, you know, the biggest band in history because there weren't big, big rock and roll groups. There was no such thing. Um, and, and actually there was more of a predetermined path for Stuart to become incredibly successful and respected you know and maybe they would have maybe they would have sort of fed off each other that way you know it's a, it's a nice thought you know and i think it's illustrated well in that in that scene where he's able to see them as a fan and you get the idea of how they might have you know continued to sort of work and inspire each other in tandem in some way
2: yeah i completely agree i think the film does a really good job of of highlighting that, and like I said earlier, you know, the the importance that he played in in those early stages of the career, and how that then informed um, part of how they become such cultural icons. Um, I don't think gets missed uh, in the film, mm. and and I think you know going back to Stephen Dorff, um, the point I wanted to make earlier was um, I've seen him in quite a few things, and um, uh, you know he's obviously a very well respected actor. But this does feel like it's one of those roles that was made for him. Yeah, you know, you have those, you, you have those um, actor and character um, uh, combinations where something is just absolutely right. And I don't, th- I feel like I will always remember Stephen Dorff as the guy who played Stuart Sutcliffe. Yes. They seem inseparable to me, yeah. and I think it's, I think it's probably the films doing because because they so little. Of other footage about Stuart Sutcliffe, yeah. that you immediately picture Stephen Dorf, but I think he embodies the character so well yeah. that you don't see it as a performance. You see, you see him take on that that character, and yeah. and he becomes the, the you yeah, know becomes Stuart Sutcliffe himself.
3: Yeah, yeah. To the extent that, um, for years and maybe even still a bit now, you know, if somebody mentions Stuart Sutcliffe, it's Stephen Dorff's face. I think. Probably. Yes, exactly. Again, yeah, because as you say, there's such a paucity of actual. Yeah. Uh, like images of Stuart, that um, that kind of was filled in in my head by Stephen Dorff, and probably still is to some extent.
2: Um, yeah, agreed. Um, is there anything else you we, we, we want to talk about,
3: uh, Backbeat? Uh, there's there's Ian Hart. I don't think we've talked we quite, talked about Ian Hart. quite we enough about Ian Hart. Enough. Yeah, we haven't, have um, we? Because I think he deserves lots and lots of credit for what he does in this film. So he. Um, he had already played John Lennon once by this point. That's right. He played him in the hours and times, which is a film that we'll, we'll cover at some point, uh, which is a sort of dramatization, a fictionalized version of John and Brian's trip to Spain, uh, holiday in Spain. Um, and, um, so yeah, as you say, like Ian Softley, who'd been planning this for years and years, must have seen that. So I think. Uh, the hours and times of maybe 1991, so he would have seen him certainly and thought that's the Lennon guy. Yeah, and and that's the thing about Ian Hart is um, he's one of those actors I really like, and you know whenever I see him crop up in something, um, I I think great because he's always great and stuff. And there's also just a bit of me that thinks that's the Lennon guy.
2: Yes, yeah. He, yeah. He's a bit
3: like sort of Michael Sheen having played Tony Blair
2: mm. as many times as he has. Yeah,
3: he's so just sort of associated with that role. Um, yeah, and and actually, I feel like maybe in 1994 we didn't really have any depiction of the Beatles in in Hamburg, the Beatles That's what I mean. in their leather yeah. phase, yeah. because we, you know we're talking about a year before the anthology, which is probably the first time I saw proper images.
2: So, the anthology uh, came out a, little, a year only a year later, actually putting it in context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting because yeah, absolutely. So, so that would have been two quite close. Um, Productions mm. uh, to each other, depicting or, or telling the story of of the same time period. Yeah, um, which I hadn't really sort of realised before. Now I just remember Backbeat being quite groundbreaking in that way because yeah. it, it felt like it was the untold story of the Beatles, which yeah. might have again feels like it might be a tagline at some point for the
3: film. <laughs> Probably, yeah. But yeah, but I guess it was. I'm not. I'm sure you know, people had written uh, books and whatnot. But in terms of uh, for a mainstream audience, which I mean, at the time. Uh, uh, you know, I was a Beatles fan and I would have read some books and whatnot, but I was, n- I hadn't dived as deep into it as I sort of have, yeah. have now. That would have been my first exposure to what, what that earlier part, you know, the sort of leather years, if you like, you know, um, what that earlier part of their career was like. Mm. And it, you know, and it probably has informed it much more than I even realize, you know, that there's those. Uh, those when I call those images to mind, it, it's back beyond thinking, of yeah. Absolutely. The time, I'm sure, yeah, completely
2: agree. Yeah. And um, go back to Ian Hart. Um, I remember you talking about Ian Hart in our Two of Us episode, yeah. Um, and talking about how you know when he does or portrays Lenin, he sort of takes on a bit of a cervic tone of his yeah. accent. Yeah, um, how do you feel about his, his particularly his performance in this film? I, I would say. You know, what you mentioned there and contrasting his performance with Jared Harris's in that film is yeah. an, an understandable difference. Yes. Here, that kind of approach to Lennon works, right? Because that's the kind of Lennon that he is in he, this movie. Yeah, he is... Um,
3: uh, the, the spikiness is something... that like, he does very well and, and an awful lot of the film requires him to be that way. You know, mm-hmm. he is in his sort of angry-at-the-world Phase, um, and but when he's required to be a bit softer um, and more humorous, or just sort of not not sarcastic but sort of open with his humor, he does that very well too. You know, there, there's a there's a real softness to his delivery. There's
2: a real like boyishness as well, isn't there? It's like he he, he yeah. comes across as that sort of um, young, not not naive, but. Um, I guess like an inexperienced, um, uh, yeah, inexperienced young man. Uh, at, you know, at that time, uh, mm. he, he does that quite well. Like, not he never comes across as out of his depth, but right. but quite often you can sense that he's um, struggling to to sort of keep his head afloat a little bit. Yeah, because, because he's he's brash and he's arrogant, and and, and that's what gets him through, through a lot of the time. But yeah. but. But yeah, there's I don't know, there's just a bit of um, uh, boyish innocence sometimes creeps through, which is quite nice.
3: Yeah, yeah, I don't think yeah, I mean, there's a vulnerability there. I mean, there was always a vulnerability to John Lennon; it wasn't a great secret. But I think when he is required to be vulnerable, he plays that very well. Mm. You can you can really see that anger in him. You know, it's actually you think about it. If I, I don't think it's even mentioned. That his mother died. Maybe it is. no. Then it is. I don't, I don't remember that being mentioned as Because I mean, that, that that's pretty key with the bonds he obviously the bond he made with Paul, mm. um, and I think it's probably pretty key with the bond he made with Stuart as well.
2: i also argue that the um the, the effect that Stuart has on that uh, like we know through testimony after that Stuart's death had a massive impact on on you know, I think Yoko I know talks about. Uh, has talked about that. I can't remember what she said. Like something along the lines of um, "Not a day went by where John didn't mention Stewart." Yeah, yeah. Um, like that's that's huge. Like that that many years later, um, you know, the fact that Stewart is one of the faces on the front cover of Sergeant Pepper's. Like, yeah. there was still like a lasting impact um, uh, on Lennon uh, throughout all of this. Uh, you almost don't um understand the full size of that impact in this film and that also has to be informed by what happened to his mum. Yeah. You know, the fact that he he lost her and then ended up losing his best friend. Like that yeah. almost you know that real like, knowing that almost makes it so much more tragic. Yeah. And it has a has a bigger impact um when you watch that scene play out and him um him dealing with that from
3: you yeah know, with grief. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I think and it's kind of interesting that Backbeat doesn't sort of mind that. Yeah, to explain this is why this guy is how he is.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Um, and like he's reacting, he's aggressive for a reason.
3: Right, exactly, and I think it's really testament testament to the strength of Ian Hart's performance that they didn't need to explain why he is as he is. It, it treats him almost as an absolute. You know, this guy just is. How he is, and that's enough because Ian Hart is delivering it so powerfully that that convinces you. You don't need to be told his backstory. Yeah, you know, yeah, it yeah. just works on that level. It's fine.
2: I think. Um, I, I think it's uh, as much as what we what we just talked about. How um, they, you know the film maybe could have made more of Lennon's grief or, or the sort of cumulative impact of of you know his mother and and Stuart. I actually like how the film ends. Uh, that sort of callback to Love Me Tender. Mm. Um and uh and then sort of launching into Twist and Shout. Yeah. Um uh, Twist and Shout, by the way, which is which is a brilliant song to end on because it feels like it's a it's the Beatles being the Beatles. Yes. But luckily happens to be a song that the film could get rights to. So um right, exactly. so it still ends up being a song that um that can be in the film in the first place. Um just to end on John Lennon, um it literally the the one jarring bit for me, un- unfortunate jarring bit for me, right at the end of the film was you know the, the captions that come up at the end, yeah. and it talks about what everyone you know went on to do next, and it comes up with um, John Lennon was shot dead in nineteen eighty, yeah, forever, and I feel like you didn't need to mention that, right? Like I understand that that's what happens to that character in the film that you play, but like yeah. the story doesn't the, the story doesn't need to say that. What right? no, like, no, the story needs is. Lenin became be, all you need to say at that point is Lennon became half of the most successful songwriting duo of all time yeah. and has had this many number ones and etc. Right, yeah, that's yeah. the end of the Lennon legacy. Yeah, you don't need to say that in uh, 18 years after this or, or however long it is, by the way, yeah, this is how he died.
3: No, that's true, yeah, and I think um, it, it's actually odd in a, in a way, you know, having just said like it doesn't mine the tragedy in his life, um, that is an exception to it. Because actually, I mean, because this guy was sort of surrounded by death from his mm. teens. You know, his uh, aunt Mimi's husband, who, you know, he sort of was a kind of stepfather to him, really. Um, and then then his mum, then Stuart. Um, and if it was going to take that tack... I, it, it, everyone around this guy dies, yeah, and I, and I think when he sort of got into his primal screen therapy, that was the thing for him, yeah. Everyone sure, yeah. in my life dies, yeah.
2: Epstein, him. obviously, his dad oh, of which course, talks about of course, and course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and um,
3: and 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 yeah, having that final notes in the captions at the end, um, this guy, well, I mean. It's, this guy also
2: died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but no, you're right, there would have been a sort of a, I guess a reason to mention it because yeah. there is sort of a, death forms a part of, of the character, um, yeah. what informs his character and his character arc and stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. I don't think the film does that, so then it's That's a bit jarring to me that they just decide to drop that in at the end of the, uh, of the film. Yeah, I agree. Do we have anything else to cover in Backbeat? Anything else you want to say? I don't think so. Well, then I think we've successfully talked about the film Backbeat. Um, thank you so much for listening if you're listening at home uh, or wherever you are and I should mention you, sh- you can follow us uh, on social media platforms follow us at Beatles Film Pod on Twitter or you can be- follow us on Beatles Films Pod on Instagram or the Beatles Films Podcast on Facebook follow us there get in touch um, let us know if you've seen the film what you think too uh, and we can chat otherwise we'll present another show to you again next week thanks for listening